0: Welcome to the Latent Space Podcast, where we dive into the wild, wild world of AI engineering every week. This is Anna, your AI co-host. Happy New Year. Did you miss me? As an AI language model, I cannot miss you back, but I'm glad to stand in for Eliseo while Swix is traveling. This time in Paris at Hugging Face HQ. At the AI Engineer Summit in 2023, Logan from OpenAI pronounced 2024, the Year of Multimodality.
1: I'm excited for 2024, which I think is, is really going to be the, I don't know if I can trademark this, but the Year of Multimodal Models. Um, it's a tongue twister, but also hopefully the domain is available, yearofmultimodals.com. Um, no, don't, don't buy it if it's available. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm excited. We, you know, OpenAI has a ton of multimodal capabilities that are that are in the works. Um, some folks might have already tried some of these in ChatGPT in the iOS app or the the web app today. Things like uh, vision, taking in images, describing them. Um, we'll we'll show that later on. Um, also, the ability to generate images. We've had this historically with with Dolly too, but uh, DALI three really, if, if folks have tried it, it, it takes things to the next level. So excited to to show some of that today as well.
0: In 2024. The Latent Space Pod will offer deeper dives into multimodality. Today, we'll talk to Leo Tronchon and Hugo Laurençon of Hugging Face, who trained Idefix, a fully open-source reproduction of DeepMind's closed flamingo model done from scratch, scaled all the way up to 80 billion parameters. By the way, dear listener, we are expanding our online meetups this year after the success of the Latent Space Paper Club. See the show notes for the new AI in Action and Paper Club Asia meetups, Watch out and take
1: care. Hi. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Thanks for having me at your beautiful office. This is it's really surreal for me to visit the Hugging Face Paris office because I've always seen you guys online and you organize really huge meetups here in, in Paris. I want to learn everything about Hugging Face and you
2: guys' work. So my name is Hugo. I've been working at Hugging Face for two years. I started working on datasets for uh, the Bloom language model. So it's the 176 billion uh, parameter model that we open source. And that was at that time, the biggest one, and all, it was also multilingual. So I worked on the model and the data set, and then I moved to uh, the multimodality with uh, the current project with edfix uh, and Obelix. Now I am working uh, also with Leo on the version two of edfix.
3: Uh, and Leo yourself? So my name is Leo. I joined Hugging Face a year and a half ago. I was a student uh, still, so first six months I was uh, still as, a, as an intern but I started to work on multimodality right away and then I spent all my time uh, here in the, in the research team working on, uh, on multimodality and uh, EDFX that we open sourced in August. I think a lot of people are very interested in learning more about Elifix and multimodality in general. Bigger
1: question first, how is Hugging Face organized? You told me some surprising details about the size of Hugging Face. You guys are a $4 billion company, only 200 people, less than 200 people? About 160 people, Uh, Uh, yeah. And then how many people in the research team? (laughs) This is like uh, maybe 15. So between 10 and 20% of the company is research. Yeah, I'd say. One, that's impressive. And then two, this is something that we discussed before. Like, It's also
3: unintuitive why Hugging Face needs to do research. I think the company has a good incentive to do research because most of the companies that do AI, they have an incentive to get very good models out, but not the best model out. Their competitive advantage is to have the best model in-house that they can fine-tune for their customers. And then the open source is for show. But Hugging Face is one of the only companies that has an incentive to get the best model out there in the open. And that's why I think the research team is, is quite important. It's also important because all the tools that Hugging Face makes are used by the researchers. So they get all the feedback directly from us. And I think this is really useful to develop the tools behind it. Are you talking about the Transformers library? Transformers library, Diffusers uh, library, sets? So those seem to me more like in sort of inference type tools. Are there any sort of training tools that you do? Datasets is used for the, for the training. Transformers we've been using for our modeling. Internally, we're also developing a library for training. Um, uh, I think
2: it's going to be open source, but, uh, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so for example, we used for the construction of Obelix, we used our whole pipeline, the library datasets. The aim of our big open-source project is also to test our own uh, internal libraries and see if they if they scale well. For example, uh, the datasets guys, they never worked with uh, datasets uh, this big before. So this is a way also to test our, our solutions. This big meaning 114 million images, something like that. More than three million, uh, 300 million uh, images. I've tried transformers and tried diffusers. I haven't tried datasets. Why do I need datasets? So I, I think dataset is great because you can uh, load datasets that don't fit in memory. So it's just kind of like virtual library, virtual pointers, or whatever. Exactly, and also you can easily uh, filter rows of your datasets, man- map them, uh, manipulate and uh, modify the content. So it makes it really easy, and also to, to do the operations in parallel. It's much easier with the with this li- library. What is the leading alternative
1: to datasets? Like, what do machine learning researchers use if they don't use datasets? They just do everything by hand or? Basically manually paginate, write code to paginate in it. Yeah, yeah.
2: That's what I did before, but it's just uh, much faster to the, the, because everything is done for you. The multiprocessing, uh, you just have to implement your function.
1: That's great. Well, I think that's a good intro to the overall Hugging Face ecosystem. But well, I'm interested in the journey from Bloom into computer vision for yourself. And then obviously you also had your own journey into multimodality. A lot of people who are listeners and readers of of Space also following that same journey, right? They, they only have some kind of NLP background, and now everyone is interested in multimodality.
2: What was that journey like uh, for you? Not from the research team, but from the hub team, when they started hosting uh, multimodal uh, models and data sets. And quickly after that, we also realized that it would be a good idea to also train ourselves, multimodal models, to catch up with the uh, proprietary models from uh, DeepMind, uh, Google, etc. I think that was the, the natural uh, path for us, but we didn't drop the idea of uh, doing uh, pure text uh, models. So there is also a team uh, for LLMs. It was just the creation of, the, of another team. For me, the journey was a bit different because I,
3: I didn't really, st- I, I came right away from, uh, from my masters. So I had projects uh, on um, computer vision where, for example, I don't know if you've heard uh, of Dino, Probably. And there was another paper called Barla Twins. Basically, I had a project on which I tried to combine the two objectives. So I was more towards computer vision before joining, but I was really interested in doing multimodal. When I saw that there was an internship uh, for this position, I, uh, I was, uh, I was glad. Then, uh, the, the team was already starting to do the project when I, when I joined. And so I kind of joined the, the, the train. Yeah. Just
1: a demographic question. Is everyone here? Is everyone on your team here?
2: We had the, uh... Big uh, shift in the team uh, in the recent months. Some people left for other startups or creating their own. But um, what is really uh, interesting to me is that when we started the project, not a lot of people in the team previously worked with multimodal models. Maybe only two of them. And we were like six, seven really working on the project. So it was uh, really new to us, this field. And we also wanted like to... Uh, to have this knowledge, because there, of course, there are. It's explained uh, on the papers how to do things, but uh, without doing them yourself, you still miss uh, a lot of things and you miss the intuition. And uh, we also wanted to build uh, this knowledge of multimodality when building the version two. That's we go much faster because we have the a better intuition. Yeah, this and also I think it
3: talks about the philosophy of Hugging Face, of having small teams with big impact. And and so we started with a fairly big team for Hugging Face standard uh, with six, seven people. As Hugo was saying, we lost uh, a few people to different startups, but the idea is still to go as fast, if not faster, with less people right now. And I think it's possible because of all the background we built in the previous uh, iteration, because small teams can work a lot faster because there's less, less overhead. communication, less yeah. overhead.
1: Very cool. Yeah, so I do want to get into Itifix and Obelix. I wanted to basically go over a little bit of introductory stuff for people, right? So in my mind, the two main multimodality papers that everybody should read is CLIP and Vision Transformers. Would you mark out anything else? Or, or what do you
2: personally get from those two papers? These two papers, I think, build a starting uh, block, because now what we are noticing is that for building uh, super large models, we don't uh, train them uh, from scratch. We use pre-trained, usually unimodal models that we somehow mix uh, together. So I think CLIP or VAT can serve as a, as a pre-trained uh, backbone that you combine with another uh, pre-trained uh, language model backbone to obtain something multimodal. So this is uh, these are foundation models that play the same role to us as uh, uh, LAMA models or language uh, language models.
3: The important thing to understand with vision transformers and CLIP is that they provide the basics for then integrating images into this language modeling objective that we use. Then it's mostly a question of data and image resolution and a lot of engineering goes there.
2: And just a note on this, so some research has shown that uh, when you use pre-trained vision encoder that was trained also with a text objective, for example, contrastive uh, loss, like the clip loss, it's better to use uh, this type of vision encoder than uh, vision encoders trained only on classification or um, unimodal task, if you are building uh, multimodal models. So if you are building a vision language model, is better to take, as a pre-trained backbone, a pre-trained vision encoder that has been trained using text.
1: Is that not intuitive?
2: Imagine you can take a, imagine you take a vision encoder that is super good at uh, classification. Yeah. Then you can imagine that the embeddings that you get from your vision encoder are super start to plug into your language model. It's intuitive, but it could clearly work to have a vision uh, encoder trained uh, without text at all. But researchers have shown that it's better to to use this, this uh, contrast loss, for example.
3: And once you have those backbones, the, the question is really how you integrate it, like how you integrate both of them into the architecture. And it turns out with very lightweight updates, uh, you take the, the embeddings that come from the clip, the output of the clip, and you have uh, just a linear that you train on top of this. Then you inter- uh, when you pass this to the language model you, and you, you only train this part, you can already get uh, pretty good results in multimodality. You don't have to train all the parameters when you're training the multimodal model. model. You can just train the the adapter.
1: Is this what was spelled out in Flamingo, or you just kind of
3: derive some kind of transform that you're happy with? (laughs) (laughs) So in Flamingo, you introduce a lot more parameters, but there's still like those cross attentions that you insert in the model that are new. Those you train from scratch, but the rest of the model, the language model backbone, and the vision backbone, they are frozen during the training, so you never update it. So it's a different type of adapter, but it's more um, it's more heavyweight than what you could have in recent papers. Now, with more parameters, you also often get better performance. Is it necessary to have all those parameters when you only train the adapter part? Is not clear answer. There's no clear answer yet.
1: Okay, I think that brings us up to date. Oh, except for benchmarks, I wanted to introduce people to. The concept of how, how hard it is to <laughs> evaluate benchmarks for multimodality.
2: So, um, there are the academic benchmarks, classic, that, for example, VQA, V2, there, are for visual question answering. There is also, there are also the image captioning uh, benchmarks. The Coco. Coco, exactly. Flickr. However, one really important thing that we noticed is that this uh, benchmark, uh, um, The performance of your model heavily depends on how you formulate the answer. For example, for visual uh, visual question answering tasks, you will have a question and an answer. This uh, answer will be generated uh, open-ended by your model. You just uh, prompt the model with your question and then it will generate uh, some words until the end of sequence is a token is reached. But the thing is that if you have a question and the answer is simply no, if your uh, model says you can count it wrong, or you can count it as, uh, there's as There's
1: ways to adjust for that, like, you know, some kind of distance metric or something.
2: But it's hard. It's hard. Well, Use another model. <laughs> <laughs> so just the way you're formulating the answers heavily impacts your performance. And uh, the fact that some people are fine-tuning directly on the benchmark to try to optimize this formulation. Or the fact that other people are doing a few-shot evaluation. So a few-shot is uh, by giving the model uh, examples of how to formulate the answer. So it makes it hard to compare the models because they are not evaluated the same way, even if it's on the same benchmarks. So this is a problem. So you will have all these academic benchmarks, and then you will have uh, these new benchmarks that are uh, not commonly adopted yet, but are created basically with uh, strong uh, language models like uh, GPT-4, and uh, people are uh, prompting uh, GPT-4 with uh, images and ask, uh, ask it to generate automatically question and answers, and then we can evaluate our models. Uh. But this is very new. The evaluations in multimodal,
3: like for multimodal models are still a bit rough, I think. But even for language models, uh, there's discussions of if benchmarks are really uh, the way to go uh, for some tasks. When you do instruction tuning, for example, for a language model uh, or LHF, you shouldn't be evaluating on the same benchmarks from the point of view of a lot of people. On multimodality, it's also that the quality of the data sets we're evaluating on are not... Super clean. I recruited something uh, recently, someone that was showing like failure cases of, um, of VQ82, I think. And it was interesting that sometimes the questions and answers are like super obvious. And sometimes it's like so far away, even you wouldn't. Not even uh, a human would get it. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's just plain wrong. So it's it's also the quality of the data sets to evaluate on and the diversity of them. It matters a lot. And right now we still have a few uh, blind spots in evaluations, but it's, it's really interesting to see the field move uh, on this, because as, as we have a lot more multimodal models, the evaluations benchmarks are improving. Maybe four or five come out that was, they were nice uh, in the, in the past two months. Uh, off the top of your head, can you name any of these that's Edmund Bench, Poppy. there's a seed and there's a brand new one, but I don't know if it's out yet. Like the paper is out. there, It's called hallucine like something hallucin. I think. And this one, I, I read the paper. I don't. I don't know the size of it, but from the examples they give on the paper, it seemed really, really interesting and hard to beat. Yeah, I'm excited about this one mostly.
1: This is like the new race, right? In the last five years, there was a race towards like sort of common sense benchmarks in. NLP, but
3: now this is the the new. Yes, it's getting to it's getting to multimodal.
1: Very cool. Maybe we should we can uh go into the work that you did for Oblix. Let's describe the size of the data set, what you did to to clean it up. You know, a lot of these things start from common
2: crawl, and common crawl is great, but also it's very messy. So first, why we wanted to do it? We were trying to replicate uh, Flamingo, and uh, Flamingo uh, build their own uh, data sets of interlude. Image text uh, web documents. I think it contained more than uh, 50, no, 100 uh, million uh, images, if I'm not wrong. And it was based on... Uh, for Flamingo? Yeah, for Flamingo. And it was based on like uh, 50 uh, million uh, web pages. However, the dataset was not open. So I talked to the authors, and one of the reasons it was not open is because they used their page rank Google algorithm Mm -hmm. to try to know in advance uh, which website to target Mm -hmm. in their data set. So meaning higher page rank, higher ranking SEO sites have higher weight. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So that's how they scrap the websites. Uh, That's, that's what, that's one of the reasons uh, why they don't. Many reasons to not open source your data sets. So we wanted to build a dataset that was uh, at the beginning similar to this one. And uh, so we, make it, uh, we made it even uh, larger uh, and fully open source because we believe uh, foundation uh, multimodal models trained on interleaved image text uh, documents are better than uh, the ones trained only on pairs. Maybe
3: to go further on into that point, what we found, and that is interesting, is it's for the VQA tasks that this data set is really important. For the captioning that, da- for the captioning tasks, you, you have an image text data set like lay on, and it's great. And it's gonna, it's gonna improve pretty well. Like the alignment is strong. Just to explain alignment, as uh, like basically images that are aligned with the text. So the text means something that is related to the image. And so, for Leon, it will be enough. For the captioning tasks, it will maybe for some OCR tasks, although it's still, like, still weak on this one. Even EDFX could, uh, could use improvements on this one. And then the Obelix dataset is really important for reasoning to have the model be performing on VQA v2, okay, VQA. Uh, so those depend heavily on the, on the web documents. It was interesting to see the dichotomy when we use only one dataset or the other. Uh,
2: that's in the paper. Uh, so, Essentially the, the pairs, image text pairs are good for the alignment. Uh, just align what you see in an image with the corresponding text. But if you want to have more abilities to resonate, it's it's better to have a higher proportion of web documents with longer context. Also this is not the only reason why we wanted to do it. Why we wanted to do it is because the image text pairs are uh, super noisy. so well, the advantage of it is that it's uh, it's super easy to collect. You just grab uh, a lot of uh, HTML codes, uh, and uh, anytime you find uh, an image with the corresponding alt text, you download the image and you pick the alt text, and you have your pair. Building a web document is uh, much harder because you have to clean properly the text. Uh, you have to check uh, what you want to keep and what you want to discard. So it's uh, it's it's obviously much harder. However you have also a longer context for each uh, image. So there is really a parallel to to be made and it's not the same type of data because on image text pairs, you have an image and the direct caption of it. On web documents, you have, well, this is essentially uh, what you see when, when you open any uh, website. So you have a text, then uh, sometimes an image, another text, an image, and then the alignment here is weak in a sense that the text don't necessarily describe perfectly the image. However, they share the same context. So this is um, another type of data. Yeah. And, and we also think that this diversity uh, helps uh, to improve the performance.
1: How much? Uh, so uh, this sounds good in theory, uh, but you had no idea of knowing... I mean, I guess you talked to the Flamingo office and they just told you yeah. that this
2: is what they did. You, you mean like the, the proportion of... Uh, Exactly. Even them, uh, even them they built their data set and they told me, uh, yeah, we use this proportion, but maybe we could have used uh, uh, less or we don't know. <laughs> so we didn't really know in advance uh, the proportion of, uh, of uh, what documents uh, you will need compared to, uh, compared to pairs. We, we did
3: an ablation though. So basically we, we, we can control, uh, how much we sample uh, web documents versus on pairs. And so we did a, we did an experiment where we moved those probabilities a lot. It was very inconclusive. <laughs> so there was no, like we had a range of like, what was, uh, what was a good range for like, uh, how much web documents we should have versus on pairs, but overall Past a certain threshold, it it didn't matter too much. And when you when you
1: measure performance, do you split it out into things like individual tasks like segmentation or detection or
3: anything like that, or is it just VQA? We don't have a detection or a segmentation because the model is basically like it outputs text, so it's. It, we can't really evaluate on those benchmarks, but we, we did, uh, captioning, visual question answering, text recognition a little bit, uh-huh. but, but it was, it was done through captioning data sets or VQA data sets, and we did classification. So those are the three ones that, uh, three categories that were doable with the, with the, um, the setup, like the model we. The put to give, uh, but I know that results in VL, for example, they use uh, bounding boxes in the in the data set, so I, um, uh, they can do detection. Yeah.
1: You also mentioned, by the way, uh, that resolution was a big deal for you, uh, image resolution, um,
3: so, and how did how do you deal with that in uh, Obelisks? So resolution is important when you when you want to do OCR, particularly because otherwise so, it's just it's fuzzy, fuzzy, right? If it's exactly it's too small if, if you can't see it the model probably struggles as well
1: well not just that models typically see much smaller images than we do right i don't know what resolution you guys have so it's like a resolution of like 480 by whatever right it's super
3: small 480 is smaller than that yeah it's smaller <laughs> than that it's 224 so you're gonna you're gonna lose a lot of detail yep definitely on top of this you have the vision model and it outputs a certain number of tokens, depending on the image you, you put, right? And above the model, we have a perceiver. So we reduce the number of uh, tokens that come out of the vision model. By doing this, we make it even less, like even harder, I guess, for the model, um, to, to, to be precise on those very, very small details. So this is something that happened with fix uh, the version one and probably, I mean, we're gonna, we're gonna improve on this, uh, for version two, but it's really, really important for OCR. That's for sure. Uh, we think it can still be important to like visualizing details, uh, improving on, on, on those things as well. For example, it's like, um, a finger or like a hand is a certain color or is doing a certain thing. If all your images are tiny, it's gonna be, it's gonna be hard for the model to, to pick up on that.
2: So we are uh, bottlenecked also by uh, what is available on the open source side. For example, now Google recently released uh, c and it's uh, it's a clip, but uh, there is a version of it. It's called uh, SO Optimize. It's of size uh, like 400 million uh, parameters. And it is trained with uh, 384 uh, resolution images. So it's a bit bigger than the 224 that we had. So I think this is the largest resolution uh, you can get with open source models, but we are of course bottlenecked by, by this. Usually Google, they release like uh, this version of CLIP, but they didn't release the, the, the better version of it. So we are definitely limited by this.
1: Well, so uh, it doesn't really affect. Uh, it sounds like it doesn't really affect uh, obliques.
2: obliques. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah. when creating the dataset, we simply downloaded the the images with the full resolution, yeah. and after that, you resize them uh, on the on the fly uh, during the training. But certainly, one of the biggest challenge uh, when uh, making obliques was dealing with all these images because yeah. they they weighed, uh, a lot.
1: Thing. Aren't you tempted? So, like, to me, OCR is extremely important. And aren't you tempted to like run some kind of extra data augmentation thing to say like, oh, you know, on, on the oblix dataset, run some OCR pipeline on it so that you augment your
2: yeah. But that's really interesting what you mentioned because this is also one thing that we want to do uh, in the near future. And also, people have kind of uh, did that for Nuga. Right. So, guys, uh, model from Facebook, and they just tried to, uh, to have a vision, uh, model that can read. So, they fed to the model, uh, PDF with the associated text, and, uh, the, the model is, uh, is pretty strong. So, maybe if we inject this data in our pre-training, it yeah. will uh, definitely help. And this mm-hmm. is also one of our, and this is one of the threads we're exploring to have a lot more OCR
3: data. We have a team actually at Hugging Face that works on Document AI with, uh, Ross Whiteman. Do you see the team library for vision models? No? Okay. But, uh, yeah, basically he's been, he's been working on, uh, on, on Document AI and on getting a very strong, uh, open source model that can, that can read. And is that primarily PDFs? Yeah.
1: Screenshots of PDFs or just raw
3: PDFs? Um, is there a difference? Yeah, sure. I think screenshots, but I, I'm not familiar with the data set yet. We may use it as well for, for our training in the future.
1: It's interesting that documents obviously are very, very important form of multimodality that is very OCR heavy, very focused on charts. I feel like there, you could classify sort of three types of multimodal models. Like one is sort of the, the traditional classification types of models, the clips of the world. And then two is the VQAs, the, 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 where it's just a general image of like a webcam, you know, where it's like there's three people in this image and all mm-hmm. that. And then the third would be like documents,
2: AI. Yeah. I don't know if
3: you can some... combine
2: them all. Actually, can you combine, <laughs> can you combine them? I, I don't know. But, but like for actually, actually don't know. <laughs> no, but like for, uh, general model like uh, GPT-4, it does yeah, all of this. Yeah. Tasks. Oh, yeah. It does task. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even if it's not like uh, uh, trained purely on classification, you can classify the deeper the better, right? The, <laughs> the one God model to rule them all. No, no, no.
1: Uh, I don't know if it's like a mixture of no. you know different different models.
3: Yeah, uh, GPT-4V. Not, not like probably built uh, upon Gpt four but adapted for images yeah. uh that would make sense, but then it's like the the Dali three model is different from like it's separated to create different uh, to create images
1: yeah, something they just introduced was uh now now you don't have to switch modes right Now you, you can just kind of um yeah do one one model and it I just does its own routing, which is kind of very interesting and then the other was a mentioned but not released was that they could add vision to gpt three point five not just adding it onto Ford, like It's not a variant of four. It is a pluggable vision module that you can kind of add to three. They never released. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anything else that people should know about Oblix? Like obviously this is like the, the big work. You, you mentioned in our, in our prep that you expect it to last for a while because it's, there's a lot to mine from it.
2: I think it's big enough to train uh, large models. Uh, so we train our ATB uh, parameter uh, model on it so it is definitely uh, sufficient for the next uh, 1 2 years we spent a lot of care curating uh, the the data like regarding the text quality and the image quality and i think we so th- there is also a, an alterna- an now an alterna- alternative sorry uh, to uh, obelix it's called a uh, multimodal uh, c4 mmc4 it was uh, published at, the, at the, around the same time as us. However, we think we took more care to, uh, in the deduplication part, to deduplicate uh, the images and the, and the text, and also based on the text quality. This is measured, of course, uh, qualitatively, just by looking and exploring at our documents, but also uh, quantitatively, by looking at certain metrics like perplexity, we obtained good scores that matches the, the best uh, NLP, uh, uh, only a uh, data set, this was a win for us.
1: For someone who's never really dived into these data sets, I mean, I, I mean, I can open up a data set and manually look through these things, but how, how does perplexity, how, is, how do you measure perplexity in
2: a multimodal data set? So perplexity essentially, it's uh, something really simple is you take a, a smaller, small model and uh, you fit them with the, with the token of your, uh, of your text and then you measure the probability, probability. Of, 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 uh, of, the, of the document. Of course, you normalize by the length so that uh, everything mm-hmm. is uh, equally treated. And then uh, the thing is that uh, we obtained that we had uh, a perplexity scores that uh, match uh, the distribution from uh, the document from uh, the pile. Mm-hmm. And the pile is uh, mm-hmm. documents. Uh, uh, that were taken uh, from uh, good quality sources like, uh, Wikipedia archive and so on, it's not something that you can really scale. Yeah. And however, we, we also noted that we obtain uh better perplexity scores than the ones from uh, C4 uh, yeah. and the uh, big dataset or OSCAR. Based on your
1: own measurements, right? Cause obviously yeah. the, uh, the multimodal C4 people would not share Yeah.
2: The- yeah just based on uh yeah. just based on the, on the text. Yeah, I, I think this was uh, so. This is how we computed perplexity and how we assess the quality of the dataset. But you could also run a multimodal model
3: on this and get the perplexity from it. It would not be measuring the quality of the text, but also would like the alignment would, would come into account. Alignment of of image and text because it would be easier for the model
4: if the text is
3: very heavily related to the image uh, to guess the, the next token.
1: And then one more question, just, just
2: about the, the whole process. Like, uh, uh, How long does it take to make Oblix? So we spend a good time at the very beginning of the project, just uh, simply uh, to iterate on the pipeline, uh, like how we uh, collect uh, HTML uh, codes, how we clean them. Uh, we had to go through all of the HTML tags, look if they were important. And so this is a, yeah an engineering uh, part. That is you, you have to be really. Uh, <laughs> it sounds very, it sounds very boring, but <laughs>
1: but very important. It is it is
2: boring and important, <laughs> but that's, that's how you get <laughs> the good data. <laughs> no. uh, yeah. yeah, but th- this is also why uh, people don't do it in. Yeah
1: but so there's the industry has not converged on a shared set of tools that everybody uses for this. You're
2: just parsing raw tags yourself. Yeah, we did that yeah. Because we found it we found it was better. We 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 parsed uh raw HTML yeah. code. So we had to clean the DOM tree, yeah. uh, select the the good uh, HTML nodes, correctly extract the text the images, clean <laughs> and so <on>. the duplicate. <laughs> so so as I said There was just a good uh, amount of time at the very beginning of the project, just finding the the pipeline. So maybe one month, but we were like uh, one or two uh, on this and it was really exploratory. And then for actually making the dataset, download all the images, do all the processing scripts and so on, I think it took us uh, like uh, up to two, two months. Yeah, but then
3: there's also like iterations through the project where we're we're like we think we should do filtering on this on top of what we were already doing, so we improve on the on the data set uh, as we.
1: Something I would think makes sense for the industry is kind of a open source set of deduplication rules, because everyone seems to be reinventing this from scratch every time.
2: Right it, for deduplication is. You have to do it uh, all the time uh, from scratch because it depends on your original uh, set of documents. Everyone draws from Common Crawl, like it's. Yes, but they are not from the same dome, so not from. the... <laughs> but uh, that's true. Yeah. Uh, someone should take all the Common Core uh, documents.
1: Well, it's been done recently. I don't even need the same exact rules. I just need to be like, oh, I, f- I like these, these. These smart guys thought about that. I I should include that. Right. That's, that's very simple. Like, you know, you, you have, if you have 100 rules, someone else has like 80 rules. Maybe they have some that you don't have. Exactly, exactly. So
2: I think we did a little bit of this, like, because there's a bit of literature, like, spread right around. Even the ones that we we designed before for for the data set of Blue, yeah, we took a, yeah, yeah, I'm lot sure so you, did, you, you used, used a, a bunch L- of that.
3: And Oblix is big, but the data sets that come for NLP right now are also, like, huge. Did you see the Together one from yesterday? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Impressive. Thirty
1: trillion. So they said they had a raw data set of one hundred trillion and they, they got a cleaned, high quality data set of thirty trillion. Which means they kept thirty percent of common crawl, which is still too high. Yeah. <laughs> so
2: yeah. I so I think the idea of the of the project and I think I think I I like I agree with this idea is that is that everyone can sets the thresholds for the filters as the as the yeah. so for each document they computed uh, uh they computed uh fresh like threshold uh, filters or no actually filter values for a set of rules and then you can decide whether you want to keep the document or not. and then so you define your own uh, rules so i think they remove like uh, and you said the 70% of the, of the data set that is really like, uh, you, you can't, can't you, you can't, can't do anything, anything yeah, with it. And then, and then, and then for the, the remaining part, they let people decide. But of course, if you actually want to train something on it, it will be much uh, smaller, yeah. I guess, because you will remove a lot of things. But data
3: is super important. And yeah, my point is also that it's still very early in multimodal. We're seeing now in NLP those 30 trillion data sets. It's really important. Mistral, the first thing they said when, they um, when they released their goals is how impressed they were that they were capable of doing the data pipeline in three months. They didn't talk about like training the model or not. It's just like they knew what they were doing for this. It's straightforward, but creating the whole data pipeline, this is what took them a lot of time. Yeah. So I think that was that was one thing that that struck me when uh, when they made their announcement. Is it is it confirmed that they have eight trillion tokens? I I don't know. They won't say. Could be this. It could be more could be more i think given we have now an open source data set of 30 trillion i wouldn't surprise i wouldn't be surprised that they have that they have more uh, i just keep c- coming
1: up with questions uh, one more thing on data sets did you read the gpt4 uh, vision system card that they put out they put out this paper describing a little bit of their yeah. process something like 95% of the the labels for gpt4 vision was augmented by gpt4 itself and i was just curious like how much room is there for
3: open source, augmented datasets? I think there's a lot of room. (laughs) I think there's a lot of room and I think synthetic data works a lot. Like, works great, particularly in multimodality. Uh, recently, the recent papers have been using, for example, uh, Leon Coco instead of Leon. This is not, this is just captions on Leon created from blip. So it's not, it's not even like super like extraordinary, but it does bring I've uh, more performance with a lot less example because the alignment is, uh, is more uh, straightforward, I guess. And uh, we've been ob- observing this uh, recently because uh, we've, been, we've been using it in our recent experiments. I think the potential for synthetic data in multimodality is very big and very underutilized right now.
2: Even Delhi 3 they, they said that they used uh, heavily synthetic uh, captions to train their model. Or also over multimodal uh, foundation multimodal models, models like Reap they train on uh, synthetic captions yeah, yeah actually
1: I think I was refer- referencing the DALI 3 paper not the GPT-4 version paper mm-hmm. yeah because they didn't they didn't actually put out a paper for GPT-4 version yeah um, cool and, and then so you created Obelix and
2: then you trained IDFX yeah on it on top of it in addition so we train uh, IDFX on Obelix but also on other data sets like uh Lion
3: and public multimodal data sets, which is just sets of data sets that were open sourced okay.
2: uh, at the moment. Yeah, Conceptual captions. Or... And
1: uh, yeah, just could you take us through just the out uh, fix process? You created a smaller version and then you then you scaled up to the full Flamingo 80 billion uh, size.
2: Actually, it was the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> really? really? With that well, we tested that uh, that it worked at smaller scale, uh-huh. of course, yeah but we, uh, we we did not train fully our uh, small uh, model before doing the, the the big one. We fully trained our big model that's unusual Uh. <laughs>
3: yes <laughs> <laughs> yes no they, they were like they were training pretty much at the same time, uh, but we needed to launch the, the big model before also in terms of like timing because it takes. Uh, it, it took a long time to, to train. So it was more like managing computer resources. But through the, the whole journey was a bit longer than just this moment when we train to a tree d fix model, because we start with the objective of, of matching Flamingo's performance. But the open source models that are out there, they're just not good enough. So we have OPT, you have GPT-Neo, but it's just, it's just so below, uh, Chinchilla that it's, almost impossible to reach the performance. It's only when LAMA came out that it started uh, making sense and that we started uh, matching the the performance. And from there, we were able to to train the big IDFX models. A long journey, I think, because we had a lot of things to learn because, uh, we had quite a lot of instabilities. We shared a blog pos- post about... The, the checkpointing every 250 steps. Oh, yeah, we were checkpointing every 250 steps, uh, but we had to restart a few times.
1: Was that the instability you're talking about, or this is just something, something else?
3: That was the final training where we still had the instabilities, but a lot less. Like before this, uh, we were struggling to train the model at all. What saved us at that moment was the query key layer norms. I don't know if you've heard about this, but basically there's a paper from Google where they scaled up the vision transformer to 22 billion parameters, and they needed this trick to, to keep the stability uh, of the training. Without this, if I remember well, the, the mechanism, you, like you would get something along like a hard attention. Uh, and once you get this, like the model would get very unstable. Uh, so you needed to normalize the queries and keys to basically avoid this. Anyway, so when we did this, we were able to train uh, further. Um, and that was, uh, that was really useful for sure. So query key layer norms. If you want stability,
1: <laughs> it, it sounds like a, a trick that uh, is repeatedly applied whenever you have instabilities. You just do a layer norm or softmax
2: or. Yeah, you can't.
1: Because
2: <laughs> usually it's, it's parameters that explode, Yeah, yeah. become uh, too big. So you need some sort of uh, regularization on them. Hmm. At yeah. first, you have to inspect which parameter explodes first. Yeah, and then you put regularization on them. But it's yeah. it's really tricky to see when
3: you go in the gradients and in the um, activations and you try to see where it blows up, when it blows up, and why. Everything is interlinked. It's it's really hard to pinpoint one uh, particular uh, layer or so. It was it was a tough one to crack, <laughs> but very interesting. Uh, it's also hard because you never know exactly once. When you're in the process, you don't know where the instability comes from. It could come from bad data. It could come from a bug. It could come from the size of the model, the learning rate that's too high, the warm-up that's not. like There's there's a lot of hyperparameters and potential bugs that can come into account, and the debugging is, is uh, very, very tough.
1: So do you have a checklist of... What do you look at when when, when you see you the see
3: loss explode or whatever? You see the loss explode, you look in the activations, possibly the gradients, to see where it blows up. Across all your parameters. Uh, yeah, you find a way to aggregate this. <laughs> Otherwise it's tough. If all previous uh, solutions fail, because this is the hard part. This is the hard part, but so it, it, it tells you a little bit where it's happening, so that gives you like where it's happening-ish on the model. And so um, what's, what's to blame? And then you have a wide range of things to blame, <laughs> but less than before. So you can look for a bug. Uh, you can uh, look for, for example, uh, normalizing uh, some layers. And you can look into the data to see if you have like, very bad data that's, uh, that's in- impacted.
1: Yeah, that's what I would look at first, yeah. right? Exactly.
3: We looked at that too. <laughs>
1: Is this what weights and biases would do for you? Or is there one integrated solution that kind of? You would wish. Yeah.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, to, to, to see the activations and the, uh, yeah. uh We'd go for activations to then like inspect data sets and then look at, so, uh, you know, what weights and
3: biases would get you like the parameters. And it's just un- log, it's just logging, right? It's just yeah. logging. Like you have tons of them. You can't really do much with it. So we had a tool where we would like, Log them periodically. We had a script that would aggregate them and display them for us in a in a nice way, uh, so that like an inter- interpretable way, yeah. so that we could we could try out and see what mechanisms were and could be could be impacting the instabilities. Right. But yeah, it was it was a very very interesting journey for sure.
1: Yeah, um, and you, you published some uh, knowledge sharing documents and a memo. Yes, uh, there's some there's some interesting detail there, but obviously not everything. Any anything you want to highlight just uh first for listeners on, on that one. Obviously I can send them the link, but
3: um sorry, highlight core.
1: Just just uh any other like big discoveries
3: on learning. Like like you talked about the Quirky uh layer norm. Quarky layer norm uh was the big 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 aha moment. But this and and there's also um the this is one we we fixed afterwards, but there's um like in the mask, in the image uh mask. Uh, there, there was like a, a little information leak in that instead of attending to all the images, uh, instead of attending to none of the images, sorry, for a few tokens, very few of them, uh, it would attend to all of the images. Like basically you tell them, uh, you, you go in the attention and you have this masks, this mask that's like, like don't attend to anything. But in effect, it's like attend to one over n, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it's not like it doesn't prevent you from training, but it doesn't help. And, uh, and it's, yeah, it's better, to, it's better to fix it for training for sure.
2: Yeah. Sometimes you really have to go through all your code base to, because you're doing gradient descent or something ha- that has no information. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, it's, yeah. um,
3: it's tricky because this, like, for example, this, it would not have an impact if you only train on web documents because the documents are long, but it would have an impact if you train on image text pairs and you pack them together. Because you're attending to images in a document that has nothing to do with it. But you can still train with it. Yeah. It's uh you can still get a very good model out of it. It's just a lot like it's more painful. And you you don't get like I think we can we, we can get better performance definitely uh without the bug. Okay.
1: Yeah, interesting. Well, you, you mentioned, you know, just in terms of like the baseline foundation models that you had, LAMO has been a breakthrough on the, on the language model side. But then you also, you didn't talk as much about the vision coder side of things. I actually had a question from Joseph from the, from the RoboFlow episode, uh, where he talks about uh, where you, you mentioned that the larger the Clip, the better results. But in your final memo, you actually went for a smaller version of Clip. Uh, so Eva Clip versus Lion2B. Does this, does this ring a bell? Like basically it was, it was kind of like unintuitive, like the clip choice there.
2: Yeah. So Lion2B is the, is the data sets on which, uh, our, uh, clip, uh, base model was trained on and, uh, our clip model was, uh, indeed like 400 or 600 million parameters. And it's true that the Eva clip one is of, uh, the biggest. EvaClip1 is of uh, five, uh, five billion parameters. So definitely at the beginning of the training, we saw a big boost using uh, EvaClip. However, at that time, we had, uh, we still had uh, instabilities to, to train uh, this, uh, this big uh, EvaClip. Uh, we are not sure exactly why. However, we fixed it and uh, now that we like for the next uh, for the v2 version of of EFX, now that that we can train uh, longer we actually saw a boost uh, by using evaclip instead of the previous uh, instead of the previous uh, clip uh, small clip that we had however we now think that evaclip is uh, undertrained so it means that uh, even if it's really big we can obtain the same performance with uh, smaller models so there is this CGLIP uh, model that I mentioned just earlier, that by Google, that is much uh, smaller, 400 million uh, parameters. And that is, uh, that is uh, more efficient. You're choosing that as your base. Yeah, we did, we did an ablation, evaclip versus CGLIP. And actually, CGLIP was uh, a bit slightly better. But the thing is that it's much faster for the inference and also for the training, because there's less, uh, less fewer parameters. Yeah.
3: Uh, one, one thing is also that Siglip is a uh, higher resolution. Mm. So that has, yeah. that has an impact uh, for CR tasks. 84 yeah. instead
2: of 224. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yes.
1: That's, that's great. Yeah. Maybe we should talk about AFX 2 Uh, so we're going to time this podcast release with, uh, whenever you guys aren't releasing it. Um, I, I actually had no idea you were working on a V2. I just came in wanting to talk about your old work, but,
3: uh, obviously you're, you're still doing active research. For for Edifice V two or V one point five, whatever uh, it'll be called, <laughs> the major axis we wanted to to improve on um, was the um, the image resolution. The base model we wanted a better uh, base model and a smaller one. Oh, sorry, pre trained uh, language model. Uh, so so we've been using the the Mistral one. We wanted to um, iterate a little bit also uh, on the data. To have better filters uh, on obersk on obelix, sorry, better um, uh, uh, synthetic data for uh, for uh, for the
2: image text pairs. So essentially, iteration on the on the data by replacing uh, original lion pairs by synthetic captions to have a stronger alignment, cleaning a bit obelix on the on the perplexity. So it's not removing too much, but like potential uh, bad data. Also, uh, yeah, using just better pre-trained uh, uh, models. So for the bad bones, we use like a b- better clip, c we use also Mistral that is uh, better than Lama 1. We are right now changing also the modeling. So moving away from uh, the Flamingo architecture to uh, something uh, that has uh, fewer parameters instead of uh, incorporating the, um, the vision components directly into your uh, LLM by breaking uh, and adding uh, cross-attentions at each uh, layer or every M layer, uh, you can instead take your vision encoder, take the embeddings out of it, make them uh, through, uh, fit them to uh, linear layers and fit them directly to the language model. And this works quite well. And This contains uh, fewer parameters and it's uh, much easier to train. So we are currently trying to to do this. But what we can say is that without this new modeling, just by iterating on the better data and better uh, pre-trained uh, models, we are now matching the Flamingo 8B uh, performance with a 9B model. So this is a big, already a big improvement compared to our first version, without even touching the, the modeling part.
3: I think also one of the big improvements with, it's, with the new EDFX is the licensing. Uh, the issue with EDFX was it's based on LAMA and the license is not commercial. So now with a model that's based um, on Mistral and Siglib, most probably, this is, this is a lot better for anyone that wants to use the, the model commercially. The model will also be smaller, so a lot better for inference. And, um, and hopefully we can beat the performance, uh, of VDFX, uh ATB. That would be, that would be really good. So you're only producing a 9B? Not exactly 9B because we're taking off parameters. It should be, it should be about 7.5B. Right now the, the focus was really better data, smaller open source models, uh, but better. <laughs> and and resolution and improving on this as well. Uh, that's um, the, That was the focus. You mentioned in our prep as
1: well, that there are some topics that you're paying particular attention to like hallucinations. Maybe you could talk about the topics that you are finding are particular con- areas of concern with multimodal models.
3: So we've been using hallucination at the beginning uh, as a broad term. And we realized that, uh, it was better to cat- categorize it a little bit more specifically to some categories that were like more targeted. Uh, so for example, like there's the uh, object attributes where you would have like a small attribute, like let's say uh, the hand of a person that is, uh, that's a certain color and the model would be like, it's, it's yellow when it's red. So that would be, that would be one. There's like objects that are not there, but the model thinks are there. Like when the model is trying to reason, with different elements in the picture, but it gets it wrong. So you get like comparisons, uh, kind of hallucination, counting. Oh right. my God, yeah. You have uh, the environment. So it would talk about like the object or the person in the picture, but it would get the whole environment behind uh, wrong. And uh, a few others that I don't uh, have in mind right now, but basically categorizing those I think is important because it helps you target the type of data that's missing. Or the type of fine tuning that you should do afterwards that's missing. And so, uh, this is going to be very useful for us, uh, in building future datasets. I'm not sure if we'll be able to incorporate all those, like those datasets we've been thinking about for the V1.5, but, uh, we'll definitely do this for the, the iteration after. And the goal here is really to get to something that's on par or better than what is currently done in closed source, like GPT-4V doesn't hallucinate as much on those topics, and you want you want the the open source models to to at least match this. But it's still like it's still an open research topic because those models still do this. Uh, if you push them a little bit, if you ask the like some specific questions, it, like they will hallucinate things in the picture. Yeah, you mean GPT-4, including yeah, GPT-4V.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have tried this, by the way. I tried to use it to interpret like a menu and it would just
2: make up menu items and make up prices and. <laughs> so something really interesting is that, uh, GPT-4, even much better, uh, and bigger models like GPT-4 shows the same failure cases as, uh, our model. So for, so for example, example okay. <laughs> <Something>. <laughs> no, but it means that the way we are training the, training the models now, uh, is not ideal. And especially, for example, counting, you take this task. Uh, even if you train on uh, web documents or image text pairs, you will never really uh, find this task in your training data. You will always have a picture and maybe a caption of uh, one apple or two uh, computers, but you will never get to uh, like 10, 15, 20. It doesn't, doesn't really happen. So you, you don't learn this uh, ability just by training on, uh, on, uh, image text pairs or web documents. So what you have to do is to create your own, uh, data that, uh, target specific tasks, mm. like for example, create one specifically for OCR, create one specifically for counting, uh, create one, uh, specifically, uh, I don't know, to challenge the model on hallucination, some types of, uh, hallucination. A sort of flan, but for multimodal.
3: And I think. In multimodality, those hallucinations are even more unforgiving than what they are for NLP in that when the language model is making up facts, uh, you can think that it got it a little bit wrong or it's making up a story. But when a multimodal model tells you there is a teapot in this picture and there is none, it, very it, it's very obvious. It's very obvious very quickly. If you're the user of this model and you receive this, you you are having a hard time trusting it for anything. So this is, this is one of the big, big things to tackle. And, uh, for hallucinations in NLP, a fine tuning that has helped a lot is the reinforcement learning with a human feedback or AI feedback. And this is still very early in multimodal. We're not sure exactly how much we can improve with those, uh, with those types of datasets, but it's, it's likely that it would help, it it will help the model understand uncertainty to a more fine-grained level. And so improve on all those uh, types of hallucinations, uh, ultimately.
1: And, and you said, in you know, a prep as well that you're measuring this against other closed source models like Bard. I, like basically, do you have your own internal benchmarks that you're
3: running? Oh, or? No, no. This is this is mostly qualitative. Yeah. Uh, it's more like does it like we know it happens in ours because we've played with it. Does it happen with theirs? And uh, yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> the the thing is for ours, the evaluation data sets that we use. Or that we've used for like edfix uh, so far they like they don't measure hallucinations that much it's, it's not a, it's not targeted for this new data sets that are coming for evaluations are exciting and i think we'll go in this direction and will help us uh, evaluate hallucinations and different types of hallucinations more accurately but right now at least for edfix even with those evaluation benchmarks, and even if this helps, like obviously, if you get a very bad scores, your model is is, is hallucinating. Like could be hallucinating things. It's not targeted to this, and we were flying blind a little bit on this uh, uh, on this topic.
2: But there are definitely uh, benchmarks to evaluate uh, halluc- hallucinations currently. So I think about uh, sugar crab, for example. So you just have an image and two captions uh, of it. And the model has to select the the best one, hmm. uh, or vinogram, I think. So the so actually the captions are made such such that it's uh, it's tricky. Vinnograd, like the the common sense NLP one. Yes, yeah. and this one is really hard. But you can have yeah. one with uh, with uh, images. Yeah, I think this this can be a great way to to evaluate hallucinations of the of the models. However, it's not really commonly used. So right now on the on the recent uh, models like uh, PANI for example, they they report uh, their numbers on classic evaluation uh, benchmarks. So I think it, it needs to, to be more widely uh, adopted, this kind of uh, new benchmarks.
1: I think the last topic that we prepped was just overall, like why is it important for there to be OSS multimodal models? Like uh, wh- what can people sort of use them for? Where can, where can they be
3: useful? My understanding of this is that ultimately, you want foundational model that understand the world similarly to like the way we do and multimodal models, like understand visual data a lot better than, better than language model, obviously, but the, it means they provide a better like foundational backbone for like other tasks in general, I think in the future, when you want to pre-train a foundational model, you will want to have it multimodal. So this is why it's important now and it will be important in the future. And this is where everybody's going because, uh, because training on text data, it gets you really far as we've seen, but it only gets you so far and it can only adapt on a subset of tasks that we do every day. And you need models to be able to understand vision if you, if you want them to be helpful, uh, for, I don't know, uh, robotics, for example, and, and a bunch of other, uh, use cases.
2: I think, for example, even for, for medicine, uh, you can have tons of, uh, applications with, uh, like a vision input. So you just take an image of, uh, of whatever ask, uh, cancer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Honestly, you can ask, uh, for helps for help, uh, with your model, or even in your everyday life, how to build this table. You just take a picture of uh, of what you have and uh, you ask the model, uh, you just take uh, a picture of uh, even something uh, handwritten, ask things about it, yeah. uh, like solve uh, the exercise uh, shown in uh, in this picture. A lot of things that you can't do with uh, text-only models yeah. that you can do with uh, multimodal models. So. Definitely, uh, it's a big step uh, forward. It's still, uh, it's still a bit immature, uh, and we have seen that because yeah, because of all the hallucinations we mentioned, and because it's, uh, it's, still, uh, it's still early. We are still uh, trying to uh, unlock some, uh, some uh, abilities uh, for these models. Yeah, we believe uh, in less than two years, we will only have multimodal uh, models uh, in the future. Like they will overtake everything? Yes. Yeah. Also, also right now, it's a lot of
3: image text models because it does most important things that you want without requiring too much compute. I think it's it's more compute efficient than if you would put video in it. Ultimately, I think we'll need video to be incorporated in the pre-training as well. I'm quite excited excited about what it could look like. Probably the ones that are more advanced, on, like the ones that are the most advanced on it are probably the self-driving cars. They They're, they're doing like very, very interesting work there, but it's all... Closed source. Oh, no. I think, was it Coma AI that released uh, Gaia or something like this? But yeah, basically uh, like video generation. So I think that's very interesting.
1: Is video, isn't just that, like a a series of frames of still images. What is so different about that?
2: It's hard because you need to, uh, you need to uh, encode each frame or at least uh, select the Say like how many frames you want to integrate per video also uh one big change is like the length of the video mm-hmm. that can be really arbitrary while if you have an image, you have always the same number of tokens associated mm-hmm. to it so all of this plus the fact that uh having a, a big, uh a big a big video data sets is really challenging because you can't, for example scrap uh YouTube like that. It's harder, so yeah all of this uh uh, make it hard to to build a, a model with videos. It's also extremely heavy
3: already. When you when you go from a text dataset to an image text dataset, the like how much it weigh is is so different. It means it means you have to adapt the data pipeline. It means um, the pro, like the data set pre processing takes more time. Uh, if you go with video. Like you you, 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 do, you do this like 10 X if yeah. not, if not more for a transformer, it takes tokens into yeah. as inputs sequence. sequence of tokens. Right. And for text tokens, you, you get like one token for that one token for like a subset of text or word ish for an image, depending on the resolution you want, you can get from like, like you can get a lot of tokens for a single image uh, for a 224 image, you'd get, I think two, five, six tokens. Per image, if you want to increase the res- resolution, it goes it goes up fast. Uh, for Siglip, I think it's uh, upwards 700 tokens for a 384 uh, resolution. So imagine this, and then you make it a video. So you have like it, it, it gets really tricky, yeah. and you have to so you have to create a a bottleneck, right? Yeah, you, you have to pack those images together, yeah. and and I put us like a few That's what's possible with Flamingo. It also means you have like, uh, this, this bottleneck there. It's a lot of work, and right now, I think the trade-off is not yet worth it because we have a lot more to do with just image text, but it will be, it will be at some point, I'm, I'm pretty sure.
1: That's all the questions I had. Any um, final call to action? You want people to go somewhere, check out the models, check out the papers?
2: Yeah, essentially, so we are excited for the, for the second version, yeah. which will be released uh, about the time of uh, NeurIPS. And uh yeah, we think that uh Obelix can be can be useful in the in the next years, mm-hmm. even if we continue uh, updating uh, the model. I think the dataset will uh, remain pretty much the same. And uh we will keep iterating on uh, better modeling and better data. And if you wanna
3: follow our work with uh Hugging Face M4 organization.
1: Uh let's talk about naming. What is M4? And then maybe we should mention Obelix and I've heard of it I think,
2: so at the, at the beginning of the project, it's like massive, multimodal, multilingual, multitask model. But then we dropped the multilingual. And, uh, yeah. but it is, it's still a uh, massive, it's still, uh, well, not that yes. massive anymore, since we are trying to go, I mean, go smaller, sure. go smaller, uh, <laughs> multitask for sure. <laughs> we keep, I mean, the data sets are still massive, so that's good.
3: And, uh, it should be still multilingual now. If you trained it on Common Crawl, trained on Common Chrome, it's just not targeted for a lot of different languages. Like we didn't take care of like le- of having multiple languages, but there's probably like there's definitely other languages in there. Yeah, the 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 naming like it changed through the project, uh, but we kept it. The idea was also to have four modalities, so it fit It, it was fitting at the beginning. At the beginning, we wanted audio, video, uh, video, text, image. We thought that audio and video. Video, video is just a lot of compute for not that much results right now, like results right now. And we were, from the moment we decided to reproduce Flamingo, we dropped video and audio, which was not immediately. This started as a different project. Um, okay. Yeah. What's more of audio? I still, still very, very heavy and not necessary like right away. Cause you can take the text tokens, plug it into an audio model after, and it will just spit out the, the audio. Ultimately, I think it will be good because it's different data as well. Like when people talk, it's not the same as when people write. So uh, I feel there's a, there's a lot of interesting data to have with audio. Again, not worth the compute right now, I yeah. think. And also you would want like this model to be integrating everything yeah. with like a given size and then be applicable to whatever. You give it to your robot and you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. And, and to, to close the loop there, uh, Oblix was an asterisk reference
3: that you yes. made into a backronym or whatever. Into an acronym. Yeah. It was really hard to find the acronym. I want to I wanna stress this out. <laughs> I thought about it like for like days. We were brainstorming it for, for like uh, a few days. We had to cheat at the end a little bit. We took the S of cross-attentions and added it to... Yeah.
2: <laughs> cross-attentions. Cross uh, the problem is the F of Flamingo, right? For ad no. So we are, yeah, but we are moving away from the flamingo architecture.
4: Oh, for the for the next iteration. For the next the,
2: iteration, it wouldn't uh, be really accurate, but whatever.
3: Okay. Uh, but yeah, the acronym works only for the first version because, uh, if I remember well, it's image aware decoder, decoder enhanced a la flamingo uh, with interleaved cross attentions. Yes. Yeah, it's uh, a very very. Uh, very impressive projects, and uh, you
1: know the, we we were talking about it even before the GPT four vision rollout. That like this is the most impressive sort of open source uh, reproduction, and uh, it's it's amazing that you're still continuing to work on it. Uh, like a lot of room left in uh, obliques to uh, to keep mining that uh, <laughs> those rocks, and there's there's a lot of learnings as well in, in multimodality. I think it's a very important area of research. So,
4: thank you. Thank you. Yeah,
1: thank you. Hello, hello. This is Swix coming in from the editing room in 2024. If you're listening in this far, you're definitely a true fan. (laughs) Thanks Mm -hmm. so much, and I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed recording it. Um, We recorded that conversation on Halloween in 2023 in the hopes that we would be able to release it um, at NeurIPS or around NeurIPS with uh, IdaFix V2. V2 was supposed to be updated with a new base model, which is going to be Mistral, and a bunch of other data set updates. And a couple of things have happened, uh, but you know what? Hey, let's just get Leo back on to talk about it.
4: Hello from 2024, it's Leo. Just wanted to add a few things since uh, the recording was done a while ago now. We haven't trained the model yet uh, because we're trading a lot more on data. So we're making progress on OCR, on image to code capabilities, and we want to be a lot more thorough in the image text pairs uh, data set that we use. I don't know if you've heard, but the Lion dataset has had um, an issue with CSAM images. And so we want to get ahead of this and fix the problem before we start the training. But we will start training soon. In the meantime, we released Website. It's an image to HTML dataset. Uh, The idea behind this dataset was to show that we could create a very useful synthetic dataset uh, at scale with open source models. Yo um, Hugo, Hugo spearheaded the the effort, and so he used um, Mistral and the DeepSeq coder model to generate the the pairs of uh, screenshots and HTML code, and then we fine tune uh, an early version of IDFX two uh, on the data set to have a demo. You can reach uh, you can find the model on the hub. Uh, you can find the demo on the hub, and you can find the data set on the hub. So. Definitely go there and, uh, and and check it out. I think some people have already started training their own model on it. But uh, it's been very well received. And so we think we're going to do a lot more small releases like websites in the future. Basically switching from uh, releasing everything in one package with the model trained to uh, releasing the data sets, architecture and training insights that we get along the way and then releasing the model. So stay tuned. Uh, I hope you will enjoy the podcast and thanks Sean for having us.